0: You are very welcome to this live recording of the Irish Times Women's Podcast coming to you from the Blue Room at the very cool Dean Hotel on Harcourt Street in Dublin. I'm Kathy Sheridan, and just our usual reminder that you can subscribe to us on our award-winning podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or whatever app you listen to the podcast on. And if you like what you hear, please go to iTunes and write a review saying how fantastic and wonderful you think we are on the Irish Times Women's Podcast, or don't. Women have choices, and so do men. <laughs> and we applaud every woman for that. Now, we have a very special episode lined up for you today. Our audience here is filled with people from all over the world, from Africa to the Middle East, but what they have in common is that they've made Ireland their home. Today is a celebration of these people and of a new book by Irish Times journalist, Sorka Pollock! <laughs> New to the Parish, which will be out shortly, is based on Sorica's Irish Times series of the same name. Now, I know many of you will be familiar with the series, but for those who aren't, New to the Parish is a weekly article which focuses on an individual or a family who, for a wide variety of reasons, have made their homes in Ireland over the past ten years now, the book is an inspiring timeline, and I don't use the word inspiring lightly. I was awake at 6 o'clock this morning reading the PDF of this book, and I was in tears, and I was also kind of cheering. And I mean that. It is an immensely inspiring book, uh, and it's also it's, it's heart-lifting. So it isn't just one homogenous lump of misery as we have been fed <laughs> by the media, including ourselves, over the years, because these many of you here know the stories far better than we do you are people for whom life changed in one whether it's through love or necessity or through war or whatever your lives changed and you ended up here in this very wet little island off the west of Europe we still can't understand why but anyway Um, so there are some people here from Cameroon to Myanmar uh, Poland to New York Nigeria to Venezuela Iraq to Syria and back home again and included our women like our guests this evening, Maisa Al-Hariri from Syria, and Flavia Comeco from Venezuela. <laughs> who will join our discussion along with Sereka Pollock. But before we start talking, we always like to bookend our live events with music. And this evening we have something really special. Janneke van Neitenten moved to Ireland from the Netherlands in 2011 and featured in the Irish Times New to the Parish series earlier this year. She spent her first two years in Dublin living off the change of passers-by as she busked on Grafton Street and outside the Gaiety Theatre and went on to study at the IADT National Film School. She now works as a musician and a sound designer. Janneke, before you sing for us, tell us, did you get a warm welcome from your fellow Irish musicians here?
2: yeah it's been it's been incredible yeah people are very yeah do you find
0: do you find musicians particularly generous or did you find a big welcoming community when you arrived here when you were bosking on grafton street who paid who who was who was most generous to you
2: uh the homeless (laughs) yeah (laughs) rich people not so much um so but yeah everyone's it's been great you know uh, it's been a great experience
0: and You're still here and happily settled. Yeah, Isn't that interesting? Now tell me this, I'm going to ask everybody this. but what's the best thing about living in Ireland, and what is the worst thing about living in Ireland? I'll be <laughs> honest.
2: Um, I'll start with the worst thing, because I, I like to end with a, on a good note. but um, the worst thing is probably the rent, uh, and the best thing is uh, the people, you know? uh, people, they're just so it um, doesn't matter. You know, when I moved here, I couldn't really play music. But people are always so encouraging, and uh, that's really lovely, you know.
0: <laughs> well, look, we're looking forward to hearing your first song, which is the lovely title of Onward Still. Yes. So take it away, Janneke. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: breath now please oh you will run out of air to oh, keep those eyes that see the things that one day could be there oh you are going down a stream but up the hill to wherever I don't know go where all dreams go and keep those picture books in your glass door cabinet but do not hold on to You had no shape before you made it take its form. Oh, so mold it in your hands, work it till your bones are worn. Oh, you are going down the stream, but up the hill to wherever. now please oh you will run out of
0: it well that was Yanaka van nine, 9 and 10 that was Yanaka van 9 and 10 <laughs> <laughs> And if I'd seen you busking outside the gaiety, I would have given you all my money. (laughs) And we'll be hearing another song from Yannicka later on, which we're looking forward to very much. Now, we have a wonderful Irish Abroad series that runs in the Irish Times. But New to the Parish, instead of looking at the Irish Abroad, looks at those people from all over the world who have chosen to make Ireland their home. New to the Parish might not be a phrase familiar to a lot of them, but to explain, it's a colloquial phrase used in Ireland to describe people who have moved from a different area. It might be from the next parish and parishes are tiny little places but there's huge rivalry and competition between parishes in this country, I live in a little one myself and the football is actually violent between the two, (laughs) between our parish and the next one, so parishes are very important to us, maybe not in the old religious sense but certainly in the sense of your place, being your place so New to the Parish I think was always a great title for that series and it's become synonymous with Zorica Pollock's wonderful series and her equally wonderful new book of the same name and if you don't believe me, here's what the great Fintan O'Toole has said of the book. Ireland has been transformed in recent years by the arrival of hopeful settlers from many parts of the world. They are not just immigrants. They are people from, with all the richness, diversity and particularity. And particular And particularity of humanity. Sorica Pollock is a great listener who tells those individual stories with humour, sympathy, vividness and insight. This uplifting book is both a great read and an essential document of contemporary Ireland. Now, I think Sareka has got Fintan's imprimatur in no uncertain terms. (laughs) Happy days, Sareka. Um, now, if, uh, as we know, people come to Ireland for all sorts of reasons, for education, retirement, love, and in some cases out of necessity, forced from their homes, and these are the stories we read week after week in New to the Parish. They are the stories that are the, at the heart of Sarika's book. Sarika, you're a news reporter and feature writer with the Irish Times, and as part of that work, you have a specific focus on migration and immigrant communities in Ireland. What... What, what, what inspired you to, to take that focus? And what have you learned from writing it?
1: I mean, immigration has always been something I've been aware of. Um, growing up in Ireland in the late 80s and 90s, um, Ireland was a very homogenous, white, Catholic country. And I had a Polish surname. And it might seem crazy to the people in this room who have come here from abroad, but in the 90s, when you had a Polish surname... You were one of one in a thousand. There were there was no one with foreign surnames in this country, and um, so I grew up with an awareness of the fact that I had a foreign background, which was had come through from my grandfather, and. Um, my parents have a huge role to play in it because they always spoke about refugees in our house. Um, because my grandfather had been a refugee, they spoke about refugees. My dad wrote about refugees himself. Um, and So when I became a journalist myself, I didn't initially write about refugees. I worked in London as a, re- as a journalist and I wrote about lots of different things. But when I came back to Ireland, I suddenly became aware that Ireland was changing and there were more people from different countries. What year was that? When, I, when did I come back? Yeah. Um, December 2013. I came back and I'd effectively left at the end of 2010 but before then I'd kind of come and gone a lot since 2005 and um, I came back in late 2013 and suddenly Dublin looked slightly different and became more different and when the series began in June of 2015 when Roisin approached me with the idea of doing it as a summer series I just thought this is great I get to meet some interesting people and I'll get to talk to them about their stories and it just evolved from there.
0: Many a story starts with Roche Engel, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um. She, you're not the first person who's, uh, whom she's inspired, I have to say, to, to go on to great things. But tell us about your 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 grandfather and your grandmother, who were both very intrepid people, weren't yeah.
1: they? Yeah, and um, my granddad was a bit of a wild card. Uh, we never met him. My sister's in the audience as well. Neither of us met him because he died in the late 70s. Um, but he was born in Berlin in 1913, and he was born into a Jewish family. And he, in his 20s, decided he came. He was actually born into quite a wealthy family, and. A decided he wanted to renounce his family's wealth and went off to London and while he was there he decided to join the international brigades. so he moved to Spain and fought with the international brigades was actually um, nearly died. he got a bullet in the head and he nearly died and then he spent the following 10 years traveling around um, Western, Central and Eastern Europe as a spy. basically he took on a fake identity of a Canadian guy and uh, his English was so good that he, somehow he was able to pull it off and people believed he was Canadian. And um, that's what he did for the following ten years, and then he was a spy for the communist party. Communist party. Sorry, I didn't. Clear Let's that up. point out. <laughs> spy for the. It communist communist didn't work out in the case. <laughs> well, no, because he um, he went ended up in India and was arrested for being a communist sympathizer and spent four years in prison there. Um, which actually worked out well in a sense because what I well, he was Jewish and he ended up in prison during World War Two. So he kind of sat out World War Two. His family unfortunately didn't, um and they dispersed, a lot of them disappeared, others some ended up actually in South America, um, some ended up in the US. And um Then he went back to what was then Czechoslovakia um, and (laughs) met this Irish woman, Northern Irish woman, who in 1945 had decided that she was sick of living in Northern Ireland. Actually, she was in Dublin at the time and decided to get on a plane to uh, post-war Central Europe. It was literally 1945. The war had just ended and got a job as a a French teacher in a school. And Eileen Gaston was her name. Wasn't she some woman? She was incredible. What she, was she I, thinking? Oh, she was mad. Yes. She, but, she, um, they, but they were both mad. and They met each other and they fell in love. And um, my grandfather actually wrote a book about um, those 10 years. And he. there's this absolutely gorgeous description of the first time he saw my grandmother um, across a room. It's a real kind of love at first sight moment. And um, they got married. And um, he then had to leave because he, um, in a turn of events... He started to write about the fact that um, Czechoslovakia should accept US aid and uh, the communist um, ruling party didn't agree with this and sent the secret police to his door and he needed to get out of the country. So he um, sent my granny ahead and, on, on a plane and then he walked over the border on foot and flew from, I'm not sure exactly where he flew from, flew to London, then Northern Ireland, and there he was in 1948. And arrived at the Gaston door. Arrived at the very... who, said, who is this guy? <laughs> very... Conservative Presbyterian Gaston Dor, who um, didn't quite know what to make, and it, it should be pointed out, their daughter had arrived back about two months earlier, heavily pregnant, and they hadn't seen her in a few years. And um, he then turned up and he introduced himself, and they took him in. And from what my fathers told me about this family, they were a very closed family. They were very religious, and they would have never met. A Jewish person they would have never met a, a communist sympathizing Jewish person and um, they took him in and here we are today.
0: It's an extraordinary story and obviously sort of I need to ask you Sarca, about your own Jewish heritage has that ever been an issue in this country or anywhere else?
1: No, never. It's always something I've been fascinated by. I always feel I'd love to research it even deeper. I actually recently did the (laughs) ancestry.com DNA testing, and I was absolutely fascinated to find that I actually carry a huge amount of DNA from Central, it said Central Jewish European. But um, recently, I was, for the very first time in my life, and and I was brought up uh, Unitarian in the Unitarian Church down the road in Stephen's Green, Um, but I was. tacked on twitter with anti-semitic remarks someone had gone back and researched my family and um, found out that i had a jewish grandfather and it's happened three times actually in the last few months and i was just more shocked than anything i couldn't believe that someone had gone to that trouble but um it, it, there are people out there who are just determined to create hate and this is the first one that's happened never in America. my life
0: never before no. So, did all of that? I presume that must have given you then some kind of a, a, a particular insight into into what people experience when they either emigrate, which some of your maternal side did, I gather, and people who are migrants or are immigrating was, was that was that a huge part of your motivation, or did you just decide this is, this is Ireland is looking so diverse now, should be celebrated, explored? Um, maybe some nuance and context lent to it, which you do wonderfully in the book. Okay. Um, is that So out of all those things, what has kept you focused? Is it a personal thing, or is it just looking around at these marvellous people and thinking?
1: It's definitely a combination of the two, and I should mention my mum's side of the family, because like... Nearly every Irish family in this country, we have a huge number of members of our huge, huge number of members of our family who live in the United States, because that's where people went uh, in the early 20th century and the mid 20th century, and up until 20 or 30 years ago, and people still go today, but um, slightly different circumstances these days. Um, it was definitely a combination of the two. It was an inherent. Um, I don't say it was an inherent understanding of migration, because I don't have an inherent understanding of migration, but it was something I'd grown up with. I'd always heard about refugees. But I'd also, I was excited about this country I was seeing transforming before my eyes, and I used to give out so much as a teenager about Ireland being so boring. I mean, I can see my sister laughing because she knows exactly what I'm talking about. I used to just be like, why does no one speak other languages? Why does everyone look the same? And then I came back at the end of 2013. I was like, this is, this is what I've been waiting for. And I think it's great.
0: And here we are, the room full of people who are just smiling and... I don't know how many how many countries are represented here, but we must do a head count before we leave. mysa um, Al Hariri, you're a student in business in UCD, and that all sounds very simple. Now it sounds that like you just left a country and ended up in UCD. That is in fact not remotely what your story is like. Yeah, Tell me how right. how you ended up here.
3: Well, it was unexpected actually. Uh, it started. Uh, when leaving from Turkey, I felt in the start that my life was ending in Turkey. But in 2016, listening about people leaving, uh, migrating to Greece, uh, there where it started like uh, we had to decide to leave for a better future. Uh, it was it was a lot of challenges. You, you as, started in Syria? No, no. Uh, well, in Syria, because of the war, we, had to, we definitely had to leave from there. Uh, b- but, like, my, my, my father was already, like, uh, having his own job in Turkey and all that, but we couldn't continue our education at all. We got stuck in, t- in Turkey for a year. and After crossing the sea, uh, which was really terrible. Uh, Tell us
0: a little bit about that, Maisel. So your father stayed in Turkey with your brother, and yourself and your mother and and your sisters decided you were going to try and get to Greece. Yeah,
3: yeah. Tell us a
0: little bit about that journey.
3: So uh, it was me, my mom, and two other sisters who uh, were, like, we all together. Uh, We we decided to leave,
0: uh, like... uh, We tend to forget that it's still deeply distressing and I'm asking Maisa to tell her story which to us sounds like a very interesting adventure but is still clearly capable of distressing the people who went through it and not surprisingly because now if you can tell us you actually got on an inflatable little dinghy
3: yes it was a, a raft actually uh, and it was not stable uh, the sea was uh, even it was a scary night's it was dark uh, but we had to take that risk for for my mom and the sister that left back in Turkey uh, we it was a, a journey of two hours not knowing where we would end up and we got stuck on an island for about six months not knowing what would be our future uh, it was very tough every day we we could like we 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 used to get news uh about what would happen. Uh every time the European uh government used to change like not knowing what what would they do with the refugees over there because it was not uh, a small number of people. But still in the end of the day they're not only a number. They're 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 human beings. Uh, but I kept my hope in God. Uh, that what kept me uh,
0: survived you know all that time. But you also made your own luck in a way, didn't you? You started yeah. began to work for NGOs. Exactly using your very good English. Exactly. That
3: what helped me. Yes. And uh, because seeing a lot of people over there not speaking English, which was terrible, uh, they, most of them, they ended their life like trying to suicide. Uh, not having hope for the future Uh, and uh, I I kept myself busy with working with uh, different NGOs in the camps, me and my other two sisters. And uh, slowly, and that sl- gave you a
0: certain advantage, didn't it, when it came yeah, to, to y- getting uh, getting more freedom? I yeah, suppose.
3: exactly, exactly. Not only that, we were afraid that we would get relocated. Actually, before getting the news, uh, we were afraid to get to a country that doesn't speak English. And slowly, slowly, when we got our interview, and on September uh, 2016. Uh, and we were selected from those who would be relocated to uh, other ca- another country. Uh, I have another sister in Belgium, and I was afraid to be relocated over there, which would be <laughs> three other different languages. Uh, so, so language
0: was a huge thing for it you, was. Said, yes. It
3: was, because I, I wouldn't be able to learn in another language, uh, mm. as I have already three languages, and Arabic, English, and, and Urdu. And Urdu. Yeah. So it was. It was a lot challenging. And then I even. I even kept uh like after um, getting our, uh, the news about where to be re- relocated. I kept uh, uh, working and uh, giving hope to many other people, which was the only way uh, to. It was terrible, you know, to to get your own freedom in a time, but then still looking back, there are a lot of people still stuck. Uh, And I still still pray for them uh, as the the life increases, it's really terrible over there. Mm -hmm.
0: And when you got the name of the country you were coming to, had you ever heard of Ireland?
3: Uh, we did here we, we did yeah but it was unexpected actually it was totally unexpected i didn't know that ireland was already taking people and we don't know actually over here and we we don't know anyone in the country uh so tell us where you
0: ended up where did you where, where did you go the night you arrived
3: uh we we reached to an island uh, called lesbos uh it was uh, we didn't had an idea about it in the start, and over there we got stuck in a camp. They were, it was just like a jail for yeah. around uh, twenty days. Uh, no one was allow- uh, allowed to leave because of it was the night of the deal between EU and Turkey, uh, and like uh, it was, it was really tough. Mm. Not knowing anything, uh, plus it was something new to me. I didn't know any, like, uh, how the situation would be or what, what is it exactly. Uh,
0: because I think what, what, what a, a very important part of your story, Mysa, for a lot of people in Ireland listening to you is that you came from a very comfortable middle class family, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Your parents right. were lecturers, you were at private schools in, right. in Syria. Yeah. Yeah. And here you were, basically, on this island prison. Yeah. and imploring people to let you go somewhere you would feel safe. Yeah. So you get the word that you're going to Ireland mm-hmm. and you get on a plane yeah. and do you feel a great sense of liberation or do you think, oh, my Lord, do, no, where are we actually, headed
3: now? <laughs> no, over there uh, I met an Irish lady who's really very lovely and uh, she was happy that uh, I'm ending up over here. She told me about the country uh, how how welcoming their people are, and uh, how supportive they would be, especially uh, like I was really active and I, I loved I loved cont- uh, contacting with people.
0: So uh, so when you arrived in Ireland, did it, did it all seem true? Did uh, it,
3: all- it, it did.
0: Really? indeed yeah
3: it was like we entered to the airport and we saw that crowd welcoming us uh I, I had tears in my eyes i didn't I didn't believe it uh like they took us uh straight to uh like county meet over there they they gave us a lot of support uh Although, although it took a little while to get our papers and get out of direct provision, but uh, it was nice. I uh, I tried my best to uh, get out of that place and know people, know my my path. As uh, my 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 goal was to complete my education and uh, just be as any other normal person living their life. And have you achieved that now, Maisha? Yes,
0: I did, and that is thanks to Sorka. She was the one to help me. Because <laughs> yeah. Sorka says in the book, uh, mm-hmm. or in the interview with Maisha, that, that you met an Irishman who had secured university scholarships for other that, Syrians. N- that's true,
1: that's which true. Which sounds
0: rather fairy taleish. Oh, no. A lovely man comes along and says...
1: <laughs> yeah, a prince. bit of a fairy tale. Yeah. <laughs> yes,
3: uh... I did um, like uh, we got in contacts. Like it was unexpected. Uh, I was I I couldn't uh, you know it was a bit tough because my my certificate was Syrian, the leaving cert, and uh, it, it it was like between yes and no getting into university. Uh, but then he he fought with me. He tried his best to get me into university, which was a great thing, and.
0: Uh, Yeah, and so you're now a UCD
3: studying?
0: Yes, I am. And but 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 says in, in her interview with you that it did take you a while to settle.
3: Uh, yes, it you had a tough as, old time, uh, really. It, it
0: sounds as though it all happened yeah, quite smoothly, but it was yeah. there were a lot of delays and frustrations. It
3: was, it was once before arriving. We when we talked to the embassy, actually, they told us within three months we'd be uh, out of the di- direct provision, but that was fake, unfortunately.
0: How yeah, long did it take? It took,
3: it took uh, around a year and two months.
0: Two, three months and what's interesting Mice is your mother who, yeah. who who's a, an experienced teacher mm-hmm. and speaks fluent Arabic obviously is, is she has she managed to get work or is that has that moved on at all
3: uh, not yet actually uh, because it was unsure also where we are we, we would be relocated like for the housing uh, and uh, it was it still it was like uh, difficult for her to um, to get to work uh, or uh, like it's even e- even getting to dublin is the fares are not that cheap and uh, it, it would be hard for her to uh, work in that way
0: and is there an update to the story now since since, yeah. since I, I believe good news since sarah yeah, wrote the piece uh,
3: definitely yeah we, uh, they have they got now a house in, in eniscorthy it's been a month and they're happy.
0: Near Column Tobin. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're living their life like just any other families around the
0: country. So you're living like any other family now, but direct provision. We hear a lot of different stories about it, Mysa, yeah. about, about people who really do feel as if they're in prison. Yeah. And then other people say, well, look, that's, at least you're safe. Do you come down in the middle there, or do you think it's unnecessary?
3: well okay as it say as people say it's safe but at the same time people would feel themselves as uh, different from others which uh, w- which feels so bad actually like not able to work being in that place and be they are mostly located in a places that are cut off from the world uh, i've been traveling to different locations uh, direct provisions around the country and especially to two in the in the uh, middle country in the country which is one is Hadrin and the other the uh, the one next to Port Leash, yeah uh they are i felt like they're in a haunted place no people around them most of the shops are closed and they there're not many things to do which uh, it, you know Especially to to people who are new in a country and not getting uh, uh, like proper education and all that, it 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 it, get, it gets them frustrated and uh, it's like it feels like there's no proper future then. So. Do
0: you think this is just a, a sort of a sort of on the journey to achieving what your family have, or is there a sense of hopelessness in some cases?
3: Uh, not hopelessness, but uh, there are many th- uh, like several steps to be taken, or uh, like uh, things that should be given to those places that uh, to 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 let people achieve more. Uh, in the end of the day like not no one would like to spend their day like it's it's a life that's moving on not doing anything it's a wastage of time and all that so so it's
0: very tough for them if you could wave a magic wand what 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 would you say to the people who are responsible for these decisions what what path how would you deal with this situation
3: Well, it's very hard, but uh, it's just getting. I know it's not easy to work it out very fast, but then uh, people people need to to go further, to do more. They they have to they have to uh, give chances to people, uh, provide them with things that even even okay there are many other nationalities other than Syrians who are stuck in in the direct provision even not giving them papers but at least things that would keep them ongoing with their life uh, and especially there are many newborn babies over there who uh, who are getting like no one knows how their future would be i've been even passed through like uh, several families who would be uh, deported Uh, it feels so sad Um, like talking to them knowing about their uh, their past uh, how how hard it was and ending up over here and then not getting a chance to stay
0: yeah what is the best thing about living in Ireland and the worst thing
3: well as
0: mentioned before the weather that (laughs) everyone is
3: I've been told like uh, it's always raining uh it's not
0: that bad, it's but it's not that right good. Now. <laughs> it's very bad. Yeah. And what's what what's the uh, that's the bad thing I presume is yeah, it? Yeah,
2: it's, it's a bit. It's a bit.
3: It's. <laughs> what's the good thing? The good thing is uh, the nature of the people. I've never seen it any other place. The, the, it really touches my heart. Oh. Yeah.
0: That's just delightful. My, so thank you. I'm going to move on now to Flavia, who actually, there's a line in, in, in uh, Sorica's interview where Flavia says, we embrace the rain and the wind because at the end of the day, even if it's raining outside, we're safe here. Isn't that the nicest thing you could read anywhere? That really raised my heart this morning, Flavia. Now, Flavia grew up in the city of Coro in northern Venezuela. And actually also comes from a very comfortable background before things went horribly wrong for Venezuela. Exactly. Tell us a bit about it, Flavia.
4: So um, I come from a middle-class family where we had the opportunity to you know, go to college and had a normal life. I moved to another city in my country to do uh, journalism. I actually studied journalism um, there. So it was easy let's say in terms of you know not being forced to work to kind of like pay for my studies that's like a very positive thing and that not many of people have the same opportunity um, but yeah uh, growing up in Venezuela I would say is kind of like sweet and sour because Venezuelans are normally very chatty people they're always kind of smiling and seeing all the positive out of everything. But at the same time, um, we were going through a very difficult situation, socially and politically. Um, so it was very dangerous.
0: Uh, Indeed, because Saraka's interview with you starts with you going out every morning at 7am to count the bodies in the hospital morgue. She was only 20 at the time. Yeah. So this place is, I think, I gather Maraca- Maracaibo. Maracaibo. Yeah, that's it's a city one of the most dangerous places on yeah. earth. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And this is where you chose to practice your journalism. Yeah.
4: So I went there just to to study journalism, and then I was doing the internships in one of the, like the main newspapers there. And of course, being an intern, my first month was to cover crime news, um, like for the full month. So that means going off, going to the to the hospital morgue at 7 a.m. just to check how many bodies were there, um, how many were from, you know, violent deaths. Um, and then, you know, if the family were around, you would need to kind of, like, approach them and ask for further questions. So, of course, I was 20 back then. Yeah. Um, by the time I was telling Sorica, I didn't really get kind of, like, the difficulty of that because I think I was so young and I was so... I don't know. Um, I'm, la- I'm laughing at
0: this because any journalist in this country, even where we don't have the same level of danger at all, you don't likely go into a neighborhood, into the house of somebody who's just been shot dead in a gang feud, and so, yeah. sort of say, Well, what, what happened here? <laughs> so, this is what you are doing routinely. Yeah. <laughs> And what were you thinking? Were you thinking there's a story to be told here about the politics of Venezuela? Hugo Chavez was, of course, in the way you tell it, was a very divisive uh, presence in the country at this stage.
4: Yeah, yeah. So here's the situation. Um, I don't know if you know, but Venezuela used to be a very wealthy country. We have the biggest reserve of oil in the world. Um, And, well, when Chavez started... Uh, he was very lucky because, kind of like, the, the oil was getting uh, more expensive and more expensive. So that means that more dollars were getting into the country. So that we would have like a comfortable, you know, living, let's say. But then everything, I think, the way of his politics, kind of like, changed the people in Venezuela. So we got more divided. So it was literally people that were supporting the government and people that were against it and that was a big issue because we were all Venezuelans still but you could see you could still feel like the difference and how people would look at you because you were not with the government and going back to the journalism part it was very tough as well to be a journalist when there was this figure or this president um, being very um, strictive, let's say, with the you know news that were being like were shared in the newspapers. So, so for example, there
0: was a fair bit of censorship. Was there, Flavia? Yeah, yes. yeah,
4: yeah. There was no freedom of press whatsoever. So, for example, if newspapers or TV channels would share stuff that were against the government, literally, those uh, companies or those newspapers would be closed down. And that actually happened back in Venezuela with one of the biggest TV channels, national TV channels in the country. And it was just because they're kind of like, we're showing the world and showing the Venezuelans mainly because that's the thing. Here abroad, we read about Venezuela, and you watch the news, and it's all about Venezuela. But internally in the country, they don't have access as much as we do outside to kind of like what is really happening in the country because of the censorship, as you mentioned.
0: So basically, the military police moved in and closed down your mother's business. Um, no, oh, there was no. Let's take that. Sorry, take. Um, they they were they, they were closing down large businesses as well as small ones.
4: Yeah, yeah. So that happened uh, a lot in the country. Um, so small business or people that were owning business, let's say what ta- any type of business, shops, supermarkets, it could be whatever, um, they would be closed down for stupid reasons. But again, it was always the political background. Um, I don't know, if this person with power knew that the owner of this shop were not, or they were not with the government, they would find a way to legally, kind of, close down the shops. And that happened, like, in small levels and big levels, as I mentioned before mm -hmm. with the TV channel that was closed down.
0: In the end, Flavia, you had a breaking point. Yeah. You left because...
4: I left because... um, well, there are different reasons. Um, first, I'm coming, with, I'm coming from an Italian background, from my mom's side. So I always had that kind of like overview of the, of the world, how, how big the world is, and you know the fact that my family, they were immigrants. Um, from my mom's side, they, they moved from Italy to Venezuela after the Second World War. Um, and I was kind of like curious about you know, what was out there in the world. And then, of course, because I wasn't feeling safe in my country. And when I mention this, um, I mean that every time I was going out of my house, I would kind of, like, lock the the doors, like the car doors, and I would be just kind of, like, looking beside me if there was someone following me. Or I was actually thinking about this last night, how every morning at 6 a.m. when my dad would leave to work, I was kind of like the police woman of my, of my house. I would kind of like go outside from the balcony and see that he was, you know, leaving the house and that the gate was closing and then that no one would be kind of like breaking into the house. This sounds weird, I know, but it's a reality of many people back in the country.
0: So you were lucky, Flavi, in the sense that you had an Italian... You, you, you were eligible for an Italian passport. Yeah. And your family.
4: Uh, well, my mom and my sister.
0: Yes. Yeah. And so you left?
4: Yeah, I left the country um, in 2014. <laughs> I arrived in Ireland in the 2nd of April. Okay, so here's just the, big, four years. the big question.
0: <laughs> Why didn't you just go to lovely sunny Italy? <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, mainly because I wanted to improve my English. Um, Italian was a language that I was kind of like get used to at home. With my granny, we would speak both Spanish and Italian, but I wanted more, so I wanted to kind of, like, you know, go for another language, and that's why I ended up in Ireland. Um, where here, you,
0: Where you knew no one? Did you know anyone here?
4: No, but it's funny because I had a friend from college. We, were, we are from different cities, so... Um, then we were talking one day, and she texted me out of nowhere, and she said, ''I'm moving to Dublin,'' and I was like, ''What?'' And then I started kind of like searching and, because I, I wanted to move as well to study English. Um, her case was different. She just wanted to kind of like work and she, she had as well the European passport because of her uh, background. Um, but yeah, I just know her and you know, I, I did the research and I, I decided to move here. It was also kind of like easy to study English um, You know, being still in Europe, where I'm available and I'm able to kind of, like, live. Um, So, yeah, I ended up here.
0: And you say (laughs) one of the positive things about the Irish is that they accept other nationalities and races. Now, that will come as a surprise to some people. But do you find that consistently, Flavia? Do we welcome other nationalities and races?
4: Well, um, I speak from my personal, um, you know, experience. And... I I would be lying if I said that I, I never felt welcome here and that, you know, people looked at me in a, in a weird way. I would be lying because that, that never happened to me. But I know nowadays it's not only a problem in Ireland. I think, um, you know, the society is going through a real crisis of, Um, always finding the difference between people instead of actually focusing on what makes us alike or kind of like what things we have in common so i know it's a non-issue and this this room is full of people from all over the world and they would have different you know experience themselves but personally uh that's the way i felt and i've had i've you know, I, I feel here in this country, I've never felt left out whatsoever. But I think it's something uh, important to highlight here is that it was easy for me because of my background being Italian. So the fact that I could hold a passport that allowed me to stay here, um, not having to, you know, apply for a visa, just come to the country, find a job, and that's it. But I know that's not the reality, not even for other fellow Venezuelans. So most of them wouldn't have the opportunity that I actually had with you know, having the, the European passport.
0: And now, Flavia, you're, you're, is, is your father still in Venezuela?
4: No. Uh, Cut out. So this happened last September. They decided to move out of, out of the country as well. Um, the difference of the type of immigration or the type of experience of immigrating that we both had is that I left because I wanted to. I wanted to go for more and because I wanted to, you know, see something different. But for them, it was because they had to leave. It was pretty much very difficult to live in a country where there is a shortage of food, shortage of medicine, and... Yes, yeah. Yeah, so Nadia, you. you're
0: referring to WhatsApp exchanges, Um, going from I don't have enough food to what can you exchange for toothpaste? Yeah, exactly. Is this going on still? Well, I think it's
4: even more difficult now because back then you could actually find a couple of stuff from the black market and they would still be affordable. But nowadays it's just crazy um, because there is also like an economic uh, crisis that, you know, make the prices even more expensive on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. So yeah, that thing that I mentioned about WhatsApp groups, um, it was just like casually just talking. Hey, I have a couple of toothpaste. Um, would you change it for some the other round? So it was kind of like an exchanging things. And this is was actually kind of like um, encouraged by the president Chavez back then. So he wanted to people kind of like exchange goods
0: to as if yeah. it
4: was a positive things. Yeah not because you actually were not able to find it in the shop.
0: So your great-grandmother moved with her family to Venezuela when yeah. your mother was five.
4: Exactly, exactly. Yes.
0: Uh, and your great-grandmother was quite some woman, wasn't she?
4: Yeah. Um, she was the first counselor of her hometown in northern Italy um, during war times. Um, and it's something very interesting because even if people think that Latino um, or Venezuelan, let's say... Um, culture is kind of like focus on the men what i experienced myself uh, still living in venezuela was the figure of you know the women being very strong as you mentioned like my great-grandmother being able to you know just stand during war times and being the first you know female to be a counselor that's something that was very inspiring and Again, my my grandmother is also uh, you know a strong woman with strong personality. So always the figure of that that female figure has always been like, um
0: you know the strongest. And now they're 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 back in Italy. Your your, yeah. your grandmother and your mother yeah. and your sister. Yeah, back. Isn't that extraordinary? How it history has sort of reversed itself. Yeah, it's very
4: interesting.
0: And what about yourself now, Flavia? How, are, how is life in, in Ireland?
4: I find it really nice. I, I think I got used to this country and I'm, I'm always very grateful for all the opportunities I had here. Um, I think one of the things that I appreciate about Ireland is how many opportunities you can have just by the fact of, you know, in my case... Um, being able to speak three languages so it was funny because one of like my the first the second job I found here in Dublin was because I was able to speak Italian and that's not my first language my, my first language would be Spanish so the fact that in Dublin I could kind of like settle because I found a job speaking Italian I found that like very fascinating and it was as well to kind of like keep growing that Italian culture that I got from, you know, my family, from my mom's side. And that's something that in Ireland I am able to.
0: And are you settled here now, Flavia? Is this home?
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is This is very difficult because you would think of home of, you know, the place that you were born and raised, and that's Venezuela. Mm. But then if I think... Now, I actually live here, have my life here, my job here, my friends here, and, but my family is in Italy. So sometimes I stop and think, like, where is home? Because home was supposed to be Venezuela, home was supposed to be Coro, but then there is no one there. Hmm. It's like that country doesn't exist anymore, or that city with all those you know, people and routines and, you know, places that I would frequent that wouldn't exist anymore. So, I would, I would say that now Dublin is home.
0: Mysa, I didn't ask you that question. Does this feel like home to you now?
3: It's not a no, but uh, I'm happy that I'll be spending, I know that now I'll be spending my life over here, uh, because uh, the two, three years that passed, uh, it, it was really confusing. Uh, I don't know where it would my my life end up but now as i know it's it's it feels more comfortable it's not
0: quite a yes and not quite a no Flavia, <laughs> i'm going to ask you that question what's the best thing about living in ireland and the worst
3: i think
4: the best one is for sure the people how welcoming they are um, you know they're able to kind of like start up normal chat you know using the how is the weather and all of that and you know those (laughs) those little chats kind of like make your day because sometimes uh, immigrants can feel left out and here in ireland we're able to kind of like have a happy life just because you know we talk to people and we feel welcome and yeah definitely people that would be my my answer
1: and
0: the little chats yeah that's exactly. such a nice way of putting it what is the worst thing about living in Ireland
4: um, I'm going to be short um, the healthcare system
0: give me an example of where that has let you down
4: uh, I can give you too many but they're too long but um, yeah the thing is based on my experience um, I don't feel confident enough to go to for example a hospital and expect it to be in treat in you know short time or leaving the hospital knowing what you had. That's something that has happened here, even to me, and that I had to actually fly to Italy to kind of like fix all of that just because I couldn't find I don't know if the right specialist in Ireland, but it's something that we talk a lot like, for example, people um, in Venezuela from Venezuela that live here is kind of like a shared um, feeling. Like the uncertainty of kind of like going to the hospital and then, one, not being able to be... I don't know, not being seen by anyone just because you have like a minor thing, you broke your something. I don't know. um exaggerating here. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just... Just to summarize, I'm afraid to go to the hospital because based on previous experience, I had to actually go to another country to get seen because I couldn't find the actual answer from the specialists or the doctors that have seen me. And this is a shared feeling that I get from many immigrants like me, that they will actually fly to other countries to go to the hospital and be seen by doctors.
0: Now, Sarika, I didn't ask you what your best and worst thing is about living in Ireland, but actually, let me ask you that first, and then let me ask you for an overview of what you hear from people like Flavia and Mysa. what What is your best thing and worst thing about living in Ireland? You've done a lot of travelling, so you also have a personal overview.
1: I'll start with the worst, because um, when I moved back to Ireland um, in 2013, my dad turned around to me and he said... You might struggle. I'd been living in London before I came here, and before then I was in, in Latin America. And um, he said, you might struggle coming back to Ireland. It's, it's a very small country, and sometimes people think in a very small country way in the sense that they're very focused just on this island. And that's something that I do struggle with. There are people in this country who don't look outside the country and are very self-obsessed with our own problems and we do have problems we've got healthcare problems we've got rental problems we've got a homelessness crisis but we need a little bit of reflection on the rest of the world so that's something that would bother me and still bothers me and it's something I encounter uh, more frequently than I would like Do we suffer from negativity here? Oh um, we like to complain far too much in this country (laughs) that's that's another uh, I I spent some time in the States a few years back and uh, the States is the other extreme where everything is very positive but there's a nice middle ground there and i think sometimes the irish people go too far towards yeah after when i finished
0: your book this morning i tweeted we are queens Um, (laughs) and i and i do think we are we have problems but i think in many ways we are very lucky Um, Um,
1: so am i positive you're positive positive. i want to give a positive yes (laughs) i almost forgot my negativity (laughs) Um, it ties right back into the very beginning of this conversation. And the reason that I'm sitting here right now is I think Ireland is a really interesting country these days and not just from immigration. I grew up in a house where I spoke Irish and I'm deeply proud of my Irish heritage and my language. And I love that part of who I am. But I also love the fact that I have a background from somewhere else and I love that I have met so many, so many interesting people through writing this series. It is a joy to write it. It was a joy to write the book, to interview these two young women and to interview everyone else in this room who I've spoken to. And um, So that's what I love about
0: Ireland. And what an audience. I mean, look what you've achieved. (laughs) That's all we have time for. I hope you've enjoyed what I think was a fascinating evening. Thanks so much to our guests, Sorka Pollock, Maisa Al-Haliri, and Flavia Komeko. We also have to say a huge thank you to the Dean Hotel here in Harcourt Street in Dublin for being the most generous and stylish hosts. If you get a chance to come and have dinner here in Sophie's fabulous rooftop restaurant, you really will be impressed. And that is true. That isn't just me sort of fluffing on. So thank you to all the team here at the Dean. The podcast was produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with Declan Conlon on sound. I'm Kathy Sheridan and to play us out will you please welcome back Yannicka who's going to sing Home.
2: To a place I long to know I'm drifting onwards While the world is standing still The sun is the anchor that guides me To a place called home Home a lover I'd have tried to stick around Raised two small children live in this old harbor town But I hear sweet music in a place so far away And somehow I'm troubled by the thought that I should stay home. Home. and the world is spinning faster but I'll try to do my best to keep up with its pace supposed to stay here when there's more to be found in this strange and unknown place Mm. i am a rover many years have come to pass echo but nothing ever came to last the tides are ever changing but the song remains the same i wish i'd a map that would point me to my place called home